thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. How is it that a stimulating challenge can suddenly turn into a huge problem, causing destructive, stressful anxiety? And how is it that perfectly natural shyness and apprehension can suddenly turn into crippling social inarticulacy? These things are difficult to calibrate. And I guess we've all crossed that Rubicon from the normal to the destructive at some point. We're discussing stress and anxiety this week, experiences that are as old as humanity and that are being exacerbated right now by the COVID-19 pandemic. How are you feeling? Not too anxious, I hope. Of course, there are straightforward ways of coping with these demons. Here's Duncan Astle of the University of Cambridge speaking on The Naked Scientists. For a long time, we've known, for instance, things like physical exercise are really good in the long term for conditions like anxiety and depression. One reason why that might be is because it has a direct impact upon your physiology and may make you better able to regulate your own physiological responses. And also lots of techniques that we think of as being helpful for people who are experiencing anxiety, like breathing techniques, may have a direct impact because ultimately it's the physiological signs of being anxious that have the most direct impact on things like cognition. My guests this week are Dr. Olivia Reams and Dr. Kitty Alone. Olivia is researching into mental health matters and coping strategies at the University of Cambridge and has given a number of TED Talks dealing with anxiety. And Kitty is a regular contributor to Naked Reflections, a Wolf Institute researcher and our go-to panellist for matters psychological. Listening to that clip, I wonder what physical activities you use to deal with anxiety. Let's start with you, Olivia. 
when I feel stressed or whenever I feel like I need to clear my mind, the one thing that really gets me going is doing some aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise has been shown to be the one type of activity that can actually raise your happiness level. So out of everything out there in terms of exercise, doing some aerobics can really make a difference for your happiness levels. And I just find that it relaxes me and it, it just makes me feel really good. So that's something that I really enjoy. Do you think it's the combination of the, the sort of mental and physical in aerobics? What makes it stand out from say, just a jog? You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, personally, when I do it, I just um, I like to go to exercise classes when uh, so where there's an instructor and there are other people in the class and there's upbeat music. So just all of that and your body is moving. You're not doing the same thing over and over again. You're doing different different exercises. Your mind is always thinking of the next move that you have to do. So everything is engaged. Your mind is engaged. Your body's engaged. You're feeling good because, you know, you're moving fast and to different rhythms. All of that together, it just, um, yeah, it just makes you feel really good. And it makes me feel really good. What about you, Kitty? Well, I, I completely agree with Olivia, but the problem I'm having at the moment is that my sort of go-to sport would be swimming or something based in the gym. And I'm fi I'm struggling at the moment because obviously that's been sort of shut down now. So at the moment, the sort of aerobic exercise that I'm doing the most is walking, which um, I find very helpful. I, I wonder if we should start with the difference between stress and anxiety, because they are different phenomena, aren't they? Um, what would you, you say is the difference between the two? Which comes first? It's hard to say which comes first because there are completely different conditions. So you could be stressed and not have anxiety at all and not have it coming on. Or you could be anxious um, and that wouldn't necessarily overlap with stress. It can be its own phenomenon in its own right. So when you're stressed, it could be because uh, you have deadlines coming up or... Um, you know, there's something that you have to do in a short amount of time where you received some news and that's stressing you out. Your body is in this alert state. You're feeling this adrenaline rush and you're mobilized to take action. So stress can be adaptive and it can be good. You know, when you're working towards a deadline, you're doing everything you can to meet it and you're feeling stressed. That stress puts you into action. Anxiety is a different thing. Anxiety can present as fear, restlessness, an inability to focus at work or school. You might be finding it hard to fall asleep or stay asleep at night, or you might get easily irritated. The thing with anxiety, it can arise for absolutely no reason. So stress can arise because of deadlines. Something usually triggers it, but anxiety can just come out of the blue like a panic attack. A panic attack is when you have this sensation that you're going to have a heart attack or you feel like you're about to die or lose control and you don't know what is going on with you. You don't know what is triggering this. There are different forms of anxiety disorders. Um, another one is generalized anxiety disorder. When you're worrying about anything and everything happening in your life and you're finding it very difficult to put these worries out of your mind. The worries make it hard for you to concentrate on what you're reading, um, hard for you to socialize with others, hard for you to fall asleep at night. And generally when the anxiety is so bad that it interferes with your life, then that's when you might have an anxiety disorder. So stress is adaptive, whereas anxiety is not, and it can significantly impact your quality of life. How might it apply to religion, though, Kitty, um, in terms of uh, religion's contribution to creating anxiety and stress? 
but also at the same time, perhaps assuaging it or reducing it? Yes. I mean, this is a really interesting area because studies have shown that it can go either way, basically. And a lot of it depends on the type of God that you believe in. So if you are sort of primed with a benevolent, um, loving, kind, forgiving God, you're much likely to have sort of um, enhanced feelings of well-being. You're much likely to have much less likely to show depressive symptoms. But on the other hand, if you have beliefs in a very punitive or wrathful God, um, the opposite holds. So religion is not a monolithic entity in terms of how it affects um, stress or anxiety. Um, it can often have significant benefits for, mon- for one's mental health. For example, either because you have a belief in a God that will look after you, that will nurture you, but also religion has, as part of its appeal, a built-in sort of social structure, and you have a built-in community with you, so you have a, a network of support around you. But again, if you are primed with ideas of a God who is vengeful or who is perhaps ambiguous or undecipherable, this can also lead to anxiety because you don't have any end result in sight. It's all very anxious and up in the air. So if I can just jump in, I um, I find that interesting because, you know, in the mental health research, it, it comes up time and again that religion is linked. Religion and spirituality are linked to mental health, but it depends ha- the re- on the relationship that you have with God. So if you believe, you know, as you said, that God is benevolent, that uh, there's somebody there to help you, then that is really helpful in terms of your mental health. But if you think that God is out to punish you, then this is harmful and it can lead to anxiety and depression. Also, um, one of the features of religion, um, perhaps not all of them, but certainly a prominent feature of many religions is the notion of prayer, sort of meditation, communication with the divine or a spiritual entity, which which often has sort of similar effects that meditation can have. So you find, for example, that if you sort of um, scan the brains of Tibetan monks or Franciscan nuns, for example, you find that they they show the benefits of this meditative state that prayer involves, which has been shown to be um, quite beneficial for mental health. So is it connected with breathing? Um, this sort of the wellness, the meditation, the sort of um, almost yoga-like um, aspects of religion. I mean, is, how important is breathing, Olivia, to coping strategies as far as um, uh, stress and anxiety are concerned? Breathing is important when you turn to meditation. It's, you know, you're controlling your breathing. Usually when we're anxious, we have this tight, shallow breathing. And one of the things that you can do is to just close your eyes and breathe in and picture that you have a balloon in your stomach. When you're breathing in, you're picturing this balloon expanding. You're breathing out, the balloon is you know, coming back in. And as you do that, then that's when you kind of really let go of that stress and you're able to relax and to breathe in properly, to take deep breaths. That's really important. Also, when it comes to meditation, it's uh, there are other factors involved. You know, it, it calms down your mind, your thoughts, your anxiety quiets down. And studies from Harvard have shown that people who have meditated, people that haven't, that didn't meditate in the past, if they did that for only two months, they showed structural brain changes. Their anxiety levels went down. They even showed differences in their empathy levels. So research shows that it can influence that as well. I have to confess that the, the times that I've tried to, to, to practice a sort of meditation, I tend to just fall asleep <laughs> um, and maybe feel better afterwards, but, but definitely fall asleep. And I'm just wondering, as I, I, I heard you speaking, 
Olivia, whether sleep is part of that process. Obviously, it's connected with uh, managing anxiety. Sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night terribly anxious, um, but also presumably it uh, is another coping strategy. I mean, getting enough sleep, definitely. It's so important for the body, for the mind. The body and the mind are connected. You can't have one without, you can't have physical health without mental health and vice versa. So getting enough sleep is really important. But the thing that I would say is if you want to get that good sleep, you have to pay attention to what you do during the days. There's a lot of talk about, well, what are you doing right before you go to bed? Sleep hygiene. You know, but what about the things that we're doing during the day? If we're constantly ruminating about things, thinking about our worries, thinking about things that are bothering us, then this can, this raises our anxiety levels. It raises our cortisol stress levels. And this then makes it harder to fall asleep at night. So it's really important to be mindful during the day as well, because this can impact our sleep and the quality of our sleep at night. But aren't we worriers? I mean, aren't some people just born worriers, Kitty? I, I mean, I am. I Sometimes I worry when I have nothing to worry about, which is um, <laughs> a curious predicament. Um, but yes, I think it's natural for people to, to worry about what's going to happen. And I think this is just a byproduct of part of human cognition, which is the ability to think about things in the future. With that will obviously inevitably come some kind of sensation of worry or, you know, as Olivia mentioned, some terrible ruminations about what might happen. And that's I think that's natural. But when it starts to become problematic is when it sort of interferes with your daily functioning and, and you know, things spiral out of control. But I think, yes, certain people are certainly more um, inclined to panic than others. But it's it's a pretty natural response, I think. Right. So, of course, worries are natural. Everybody worries. That's a normal human phenomenon. But it's when you take these worries to the extreme and, in, you know, in generalized anxiety disorder, when you can't put the worries out of your mind and they're consuming you, they, you can't focus on your tasks because you have these worries coming in. They're affecting your relationships, your personal life. Then that is not a good thing. And that needs to be taken care of. So that's why we need to turn to coping strategies that can help us to turn to meditation and whatever you think might be beneficial or even cognitive behavioral therapy. So in those instances, if we feel that the worries are getting out of control, and the anxiety is becoming too hard for us to deal with, then we need to, you know, to try and do something to fix that so that we can feel better. I know some people who seem to be happy worrying. You know, they, they, they seem to, it seems to be part naturally. It comes, it's natural to them. And, and I just wonder whether um, that is part of the human condition. In other words, there is some kind of happiness in the worry. Or am I just making that up? Kitty. Speaking from personal experience, as somebody who is very anxious and worries all the time, um, there is something occasionally that's slightly indulgent about it. Like you, you allow yourself to indulge in anxieties that actually have a very zero probability of actually happening in real life. But I don't know what Olivia would say about that. I mean, sometimes it is, it's quite a, a comforting crutch to fall back on, these sort of common, familiar worries. I would say that some people, for everybody, worries are different and the purpose that the worry serves is different. 
when it comes to anxiety disorders, you know, people with generalized anxiety disorders, sometimes they think that their worries serve a useful purpose, that they're beneficial. So you start down this spiral of worrying, and then one worry leads to another. And before you know it, you're trapped in this cycle of worries. And you feel that you don't want to, sometimes you feel like you don't want to get out of that because by worrying more, you're going to arrive at a conclusion, at a solution. And your problems will be solved. But that's a trap. That's a trap that uh, of our minds. And, uh, you know, we never do come to a conclusion because the more you worry, the more you are going to continue worrying and the harder you will find it to stop worrying. Actually, a really interesting experiment that was done was that people with anxiety were asked to uh, track their worries, to write down what they had on their minds, and then to come back to these worries at a later time and see if they came true. And over 95% of the time, they didn't. And this is really reassuring just knowing that, you know, whatever you're worrying about, most of the time it won't come true. And worrying a lot of the times, especially if you have anxiety, it can lead to a lot of distress. So one of the things that I would say is to distract yourself. Next time when a worrying thought pops into your head, don't try to banish it. That is the worst thing you can do because it doesn't work. The harder you try to suppress thoughts, the more they come back to haunt you. Distraction is far more effective. And the reason for that is because our minds can't hold two thoughts at once. So we can't be constantly worrying about something, but also thinking about something else. So, you know, you can't be immersed in a project at work and at the same time obsessing about something else. So choose what you focus on, distract yourself, even watching a silly YouTube video or taking a shower, do something else. It gives your mind a chance to refocus and um, to kind of drive this point home as to why thought suppression doesn't work. There's something that I like to get people to try, which is close your eyes and do not do not think of a polar bear or don't think of a lion. Now, did it work? Of course not, because in order to not think about something, you have to conjure up an image of that thing in the first place. So that's why thought suppression doesn't work. And it's much better to try other things like distracting yourself instead. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Olivia Reams and Kitty Alone. And we're discussing anxiety, stress and worry. Interestingly, research seems to suggest that these sorts of mental problems are associated with aging and immunity. Here's Anna Whitaker of the University of Birmingham speaking on The Naked Scientists. As you age, your, your immune system ages as well, and it's what we call immunosenescence. And there are changes to, to various parts of the system and also to the function and numbers of different immune cells. So by the time you're 65, your immune system isn't working as effectively. That's why we see things like poorer responses to vaccination in older people and higher levels of infections. When you add a chronic stressor on top of that, something like bereavement, that's when we expect to see that older people will be even more vulnerable because their immune system's already not working as efficiently as it was when they were younger. So talking of immunity, we have to bring in COVID-19 into our discussion. What research is going on at the moment? Kitty. Well, for those of you that are interested, there's a fascinating study currently taking place um, at UCL, and it's looking at... Um, the social and psychological effects of the COVID-19 pandemic in UK adults. And what's really interesting is that they found, or a general trend, that since lockdown, people have become less anxious and their well-being has improved. Um, whereas prior to the lockdown, 
um, it was much higher. So what this seems to suggest is that the social distancing measures, self-isolation, seem to be providing people with a sense of security and a sense that we are doing something to help this. And it's very comforting. Um, and I read somewhere today, actually, that um, this pandemic, this lockdown, is actually the biggest psychological experiment the world has ever known because you've currently got a third of the global population in isolation, in quarantine. So what this is going to do, A, to their mental health, in the short term, but B in the long term is is fascinating. So for researchers, this is this is a really interesting time. What do you think, Olivia, in terms of um, coping mechanisms in isolation? It's a difficult time right now. People are, you know, facing an unexpected situation and loneliness is a big thing right now. So, you know, there are several things that you can do to cope with that. One of the things is, of course, you know, trying to get in touch with other people online, trying to FaceTime others, trying to set up video calls. But the thing that I would say is to take it further. So schedule something and have dinner together or have drinks together. That can make it a lot more real and it can help you feel better. Also, another thing that I would suggest is the gratitude exercise. This is important now more than ever because, you know, we might be feeling this whole lockdown situation might be impacting our depression levels, how depressed we're feeling, our mental health in general. And one of the things that can really help with that is the gratitude exercise. It was devised by a professor at an Ivy League university in the States, Professor Martin Seligman. And he says that every day we should be writing three things down that we're grateful for and why they happened. And they don't have to be earth shattering in importance. It can be as simple as, you know, today I'm grateful because I talked to my friends. Well, why did that happen? Because you reached out to your friends. So, you know, very simple things, three things that you're grateful for and why they happened. And he says that if you do this now, six months from now, you're happier and less depressed. So, you know, these are some things you can try. And again, going back to mindfulness meditation, that's something else for people that are looking to get that grounding in their life and that sense of peace. Sometimes we need to, things feel a little bit overwhelming and out of control. And we feel like we need to find this oasis of peace amidst all of this craziness and chaos. And there are many online videos and tutorials for mindfulness meditation online. So trying some of that as well can be very helpful. So we've got this intriguing situation, whereas on the one hand, initial studies that, as Kitty was reporting, show uh, a decline in um, anxiety. And yet for many people, of course, this is an incredibly anxious and worrying time. Kitty. Yes. So although the, the trend was was quite optimistic. They found, um, or so far, the UCL researchers have found that um, actually the lockdown measures are making people feel much more satisfied with life rather counterintuitively, and they feel less anxious. However, for people living alone um, with a pre-existing me mental health condition or people from a low-income background, um, the researchers found that anxiety and stress and depression levels were actually heightened. So the reverse was happening for those people. And I think it's worth mentioning, of course, that... Um, socioeconomic status and stress is a really ripe area of research at the moment and people struggling with finance people who are sort of really struggling to make ends meet and um, dealing with scarcity this has a profound impact on stress levels and it's somewhat ironic isn't it that we talk a lot about stress uh, and anxiety in the affluent west 
Um, and I don't know whether um, you've done any research looking beyond the West and whether uh, there are similar levels of high anxiety, say, for example, in the global South. I have. I have. And, you know, the thing is that we don't have as much research that is available in low and middle income countries and other in non-Western settings. So it's hard to hard to say. But in general, studies show that mental health tends to be poorer in the Western context. Anxiety levels are higher, you know, in countries like the U.S., for example. So that's something to bear in mind. But again, we also need a lot more research in other parts of the world, in non-Western parts of the world. So until we have that, then it is difficult to form definitive conclusions. But what might you put it down to? What, what might be a sort of uh, uh, your conjecture, Olivia? You know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, here in the West, people are very uh, individualistic. Um, the modernization of society over the past few decades has contributed to this rise in narcissism and individualism, and this has affected people's mental health. It has, um, you know, led to an increase in anxiety, um, whereas in other parts of the world, there is a much greater sense of community. People are more likely to rely on one another and to fall back on their communities when stress hits. And when you can do that, then your mental health is protected. They're more, you have more tightly knit communities. And that's really important. You don't see that as much anymore now in the West. Um, so, you know, this is really important. And also social media. Social media is so prevalent in you know, in different parts of, I mean, around the world, but especially, especially here. And that affects people's mental health. Uh, when kids wake up in the middle of the night to check their uh, text messages, to, to check um, if they've received any messages on their phones, this interrupts their development. It contributes to anxiety. And then again, you're comparing yourself to others. Um, when you see people online posting the highlight reels of their lives, so all of this affects you and this profound cultural change has impacted our mental health and it is one of the reasons as to why we are seeing an increase in anxiety and in other mental health conditions and also narcissism which is really interesting it's interesting that you mentioned the question of community olivia um, because maybe that's one of the reasons why there is this mixed um, these mixed results in terms of the impact of COVID-19, because one of the things that I think many people have commented on is a, a new understanding of what neighbourhood is, a new understanding of community, um, because people go out on a Thursday, maybe clapping the NHS or they're on their streets or they're, they're, they're talking to their neighbours in ways that they haven't done before. So that may explain why there is this sort of um, a welcoming of this uh, time that we've got, this almost forced retreat. Um, I just wanted to say as well that there is nothing um, as effective for group bonding than a crisis. And yesterday I interviewed um, a frontline NHS doctor who's working in the Royal Free in London. And he was saying that um, there are moments of terrible grief and it's overwhelming. But he said at the same time, he's never experienced such highs as well. And he said for the first time, everybody in the hospital, all the staff who perhaps may never have seen each other before are now of community he said there was a complete sense of camaraderie between everybody from sort of the administrative level to the actual medical practitioner level and he was saying that this is often reflected um when he speaks to patients who survived or who served in world war ii they'll often look back on it and think oh god wasn't it a great time 
And of course, it's this idea that in a crisis or in a time of terrible stress or trauma, people come together and this reinforces their sense of group identity. And um, yeah, the, the, the bonds of groups are forged in dysphoric experiences. I agree with that. I mean, it's absolutely true that when there's a crisis, people come together. Now, though, it's a special situation because we can't leave our house. So we are confined to our own homes. So this is, you know, at the same time, we are trying to come together. But for a lot of people, that means coming together online and seeing maybe if there's an online support group that they can help um, others out um, through that. But but because of this social distancing, that is also influencing loneliness levels so you know it's it's a bit it's a bit of a tricky situation I would say with this COVID-19 virus and yeah. um, I mean you're completely right what, what I meant was that for the for the staff in the hospital it's this idea of being in the thick of it all together is a perfect breeding ground for forming these very very strong group identities but of course it's very different if you're sort of coming together as a virtual community and that's really interesting this is perhaps the first time in history that we'll ever be able to sort of start looking into that because obviously you know world war ii there was no internet there was no virtual community so this again i mean it sounds sort of ghoulish but this is a a great time for research well i need to bring this gathering this community to a close forgive me but that's all we have time for this week thanks to my guests kitty alone and olivia reams and thanks to you two for listening if you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk and let us know what subjects you'd like us to cover and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.